In the fifth of a series of podcasts, Professor John Mee from the University of Warwick's English and Comparative Literary Studies Department is joined by three of his MA students, Harriet Killikitter, Rebecca Lee and Naomi Hammond, to discuss A Tale of Two Cities. This is one of the only two historical novels Dickens wrote, along with his early novel Barnaby Rudge. What was the fascination of the French Revolution for Dickens? It is interesting he only wrote two historical novels. I think Barnaby Rudge, the early one, was, was very much to do with his desire to be seen as a serious professional author because historical novels were seen as having more gravity than than popular romance, if you like, or the, or the kind of thing he made his early career producing. I think that had something to do with it. What does link the two novels together, though, is, is the interesting crowd action, revolutionary crowd action. Barnaby Rudge is, is focused on a much less familiar example, that's the the Gordon Rites of 1780 in London when large parts of the the city were lost to rioters. The French Revolution is a much more obvious example. Uh, Dickens was definitely influenced by his friend Thomas Carlyle's History of the French Revolution and it, and it takes some things directly from Carlyle's book, especially the idea of the crowd as this kind of oceanic and uh, natural force. Uh, but although Carlyle definitely did influence him. There are some things that are quite different. One is that this, this sense of kind of elemental tides in history that Carlyle, that are crucial to, to Carlyle, goes along in Carlyle with the idea of the kind of strong leader who will seize control of the moment and give history its identity. I don't, I don't think you see much of that in Dickens. There is, for instance, an oscillation between this, this idea of the crowd and the kind of suffering and pain that goes into it if you like a more sociological aspect of it he's quite interested also in a tale of two cities on the actual cause of the french revolution and the sufferings of the poor so it doesn't just become a natural force and the other thing which is true of barnaby roger and a tale of two cities is that he does at times whatever the kind of narrative voice's attitude to it and the seriousness of his political point of view. There is obviously often a kind of thrill at the mass crowd action and when he was writing Barnaby Rudge, he wrote to a friend and said that he was almost on fire with writing the scenes of the destruction of Newgate. And there is a kind of, uh, there is a particular fascination I think with him, with, with these kind of oceanic forces where, he, where that side of him, the anarchic side of Dickens seems to, if you will, get off on that kind of thing. So it's, it's he is kind of seriously involved in both these events as moments of mass political action, particularly with the French Revolution, as a, as a moment of transition to the modern world. And there's another side of him that seems anarch anarchically fascinated with the kind of mass action, crowd crowds in action, which has always been a gift, actually, for, for filmmakers in the film version of A Tale of Two Cities. Are there any implications for Dickens' own time in the novel? There's been a lot of critical debate about that issue. Chartism was a huge popular movement pressing for parliamentary reform and democratic politics, universal suffrage in the period. Dickens was ambivalent in relation to those things. He was very, by the time he's writing the novel, he's very much an established novelist. And he, there's always, I mean, it goes back in a way, I suppose, to the, the split I was mentioning before. There's a side of him at the time was very disapproving of Chartism and the, and the political violence, but he also issued a lot of warnings about the need for reform if this kind of action wasn't to happen. So although we get a kind of sense of him being appalled at the terror and some of the violence in the French Revolution, there is also quite a lot of time spent in the novel explaining why it comes about and tracing its origins in the kind of heartlessness of the French aristocracy. 
And, and the novel does famously end with a vision of a kind of modern Paris arising out of the ruins. So there, there is a sense in him that this, the things that have happened, terrible they are, may lead to some kind of future. And the question it raises, which it doesn't provide by any means any easy answer to, is what should the ruling classes of his own day do with this political discontent? He's not, there's no way he's simply on the side of the Chartist, but nor is the novel in any obvious sense in favour of the status quo. Is the novel a defence of English values against French riot and rebellion? Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's, it's often read in that way. It's often read, and there are points in the plot that, lead, that, that ultimately a, an English family, you might say, are saved from the ex, excesses of the French mob. But when you start to look at it a bit more closely, it's slightly more complicated than that. And I should say, first of all, that Dickens himself was something of a Francophile. He loved Paris, he loved going there. And as already suggested, the end ends with, ends with this uh, uh, kind of hymn of praise to con contemporary Paris. The family I just spoke about, although it may seem to stand for English family values, actually isn't English, it's, it's Anglo-French. And the two cities, Paris and London, are actually twinned more than they are simply contrasted. Early on in the novel, there's a kind of parody of the injustice of, the, of an English courtroom which is revisited in the kind of heartlessness of the French Revolutionary Tribunal, perhaps, but it's not that one is straightforwardly valued against another. There is a point where you get a clash between Madame Defarge, who's, who's a sort of French revolutionary harpy, and the common sense of Miss Prosser, the kind of um, sensible English woman who travels with the family, that looks like it's a defence of uh, English common sense and, and decency against French excess. But I think the novel itself... It, is a bit more complicated than that uh, and does, as I've already suggested, worry at the issue about the situation of England itself in the present time if it, if it doesn't reform. So I think there is an issue throughout the novel about the limits of change and what needs to be done. It's not simply a question of a kind of defence of the English status quo against French anarchy. There's a lot of doubling um, in the plot of Tale of Two Cities. I was wondering if you could tell us more about that sort of role in the novel. Yeah. The obvious piece of doubling is Paris and London, in which there are echoes, perhaps more than there are contrasts, although it's not often read in that way. And, of course, it, the whole plot hinges on a very explicit act of doubling, on a, on a mistake and then exchange of identities between Monet and um, Sidney Carton. And that as I've already hinted, is part of the moral complexity of the novel, I think, that the, these two, they do look like there's a contrast between a kind of morally upright being and Carton, the, the layabout jackal, who's kind of finally redeemed. But it's actually much more complicated and, I think, confusing than that. And the doubling leads us to kind of... What it creates is this sense of hauntedness that you often get in Dickens' novels, the sense that actually... Events don't just play out in sequence, but events have consequences which which hang around the project, hang around the future in not very obvious ways, uh, that we don't just simply get one damn thing after another, it were, the past haunts the present in quite complicated ways. I think there's also a, a classic way in that this, this haunting of doubles is to do with the the kind of, I suppose, a Freudian idea of the return of the repressed, that, that, that what what we deny isn't just destroyed or ever put away by us, but kind of haunts us in forms that are recognisable, that we feel we know, but we can't 
quite put a name, as though we see ourselves in, in a mirror without quite recognising ourselves. And in a way, the whole plot of the novel is dominated by, by an atrocity committed on Madame Defarge's sister, which is the atrocity of the kind of French aristocracy on on all its people, in a way, writ, writ small, that haunts in terrible ways the whole rest, rest of the plot that can't in any simple way be, be worked out. And that sense of doubling producing this troubled text, this text that's kind of haunted by itself, I think I think is essential to what's compelling about the novel and quite quite complex. It's full of things that can't quite be explained away. You've mentioned her already, but Madame Defarge is a fantastically memorable character who plots not only the downfall of the aristocracy, but also has a more personal vendetta. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about her? It's a distinctive part of Dickens that he often has vengeful women, we might say, in fact, I think in many ways he did, that he had a kind of issue with, with powerful women. She certainly does seem to be the kind of the woman who wants to emasculate, in this case, by chopping the heads off uh, men around. But, but one of the ways the novel's more complex than you might think is that the, the thing I just mentioned before, that the whole family personal plot, as well as the whole historical plot, in some ways centres down on what's happened to Madame Defarge's sister, who's been raped by an aristocrat. And one of the most troubling scenes in the novel is when we're told about her, after the atrocity has been committed on her, she's visited by a doctor, uh, whose memory of this event also has consequences for the plot. And all she can do is actually say, list her family members, not by name, but by their roles, and then count, counting endlessly. And there's this idea that that there's a trauma here that cannot in any simple way be worked out, but is actually dictating everything else. So that while Defarge does see in some ways almost a stereotypical avenging harpy, uh, as as I already mentioned, compared to the kind of English reasonableness of Miss Prosser, there is also a sense... The novel's quite clear that what she, what is worked out in her, has been caused by this by this um, male and aristocratic mistreatment. So, you might think of the parallel there with somebody like Mrs. Joe Gargery, who you know throws Pip around like a connubial missile. He's violent, but then there are those points where um, Joe explains why she's like that, and that it, that is because she was. You know, he actually talks about domestic violence in the novel and what has happened to her. So that Dickens he does produce these kind of almost stereotypical harpies and then often show us what the cause of their behaviour has been in, uh, and often in a kind of violence visited on women. Whether they, whether that quite works out in the novel, whether we feel there's a kind of anxiety about these women beyond his attempts to, in inverted commas, explain or justify them, well, I think that, that that's another matter. So the ending of the novel contains some of the most famous lines that Dickens ever wrote. What can you tell us about them? Perhaps it's less true than it than it was once, but I think it is a far, far better thing I do now than I've ever done. It's up there with those kind of things from Dickens that people know who have never read any Dickens. And in fact, I'm sure loads of people would recognise them and not have read A Tale of Two Cities. In fact, I'm even sure that if you said who wrote that, they'd all say Shakespeare. Uh, it, it is... There are the lines that Carton utters when he, he stands on the scaffold having sacrificed himself for his rival in love and you know that he dies on the scaffold and then has this vision of the future his love rival is going to get his beloved and they're going to have a child rather creepily is going to be called Sydney. he remains in, in a sense he is going to carry on uh, in this family but and that that he's allowed this kind of this kind of image of a domestic scene and, and in that sense very typically in Dickens in some sense that that what 
survives out of the turbulence of history is this kind of family unit. It's the family, this small circle of people that manages to endure. As I think I've said elsewhere in different podcasts, that is, that's quite complicated in Dickens because those family units are not quite as normative as they may sometimes seem. They're Anglo-French. There are survivors clinging to the raft of history. It's not just that it's an endorsement of family values. The other thing about that great speech is that it not only does it contain a vision of the family, but the thing that's often ignored is that he has this vision of a great nation rising from these times. There is a sense that he sees the present of the French, which he sees as modern, progressive, uh, uh, captured in the glamorous city of Paris. It suggested that it's a kind of outcome of the turbulence. And in, in, in some ways, in that sense, rather than saying the French Revolution is this terrible moment. It's just that I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying it justifies it. It's more complex than that. But it it almost sees it as a necessary a necessary event to allow for modern Paris, as though you know that sense of the aristocracy is something that has to be destroyed. Um, it's kind of endorsed in that speech in in a way. And I suppose the third thing to say is it's a classic example of how theatrical um, Dickens is. You know, there's a there's a thing in the theatre called a pointing where. There's that sense of particular speeches that point things up and are you know the point where the star gets to have their say and it's a classic example of, of that. I mean the the film that's probably the most famous, even though it's actually not a very good film, is the Dirk Bogart one. You know when he gets to stand on the scaffold and do do it in his head as a voiceover, um, and it, and in that it's a great theatrical speech and 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 shows Dickens's ability to. To write for the theatre, as it were, even in this instant, even though in this instance he wasn't, even though in this instance he wasn't, it did actually lead to lots and lots of stage adaptations, and we already know lots of film adaptations. So people realised the how golden it was to have such a theatrical novel ending with such a theatrical speech at his end and exploited that.